You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. There is a church in our region that we're connected to, a sizable church. And they had a politician show up at church one Sunday morning unannounced. A politician that you would recognize from the news. Now, this came with traffic jams in the parking lot and secret service protection and and all the whole deal, right? All kinds of attention. And a few weeks later, a pastor friend of mine had a conversation with a couple that was present on that Sunday morning uh, where the notable politician was present. And when he asked this couple about their experience in that church in general, They didn't mention anything about the liturgy or community. They didn't mention anything about the preaching or the pastoral care. But what they did remember was exactly where they were sitting, two rows up from the famous politician. And this is what they recounted to my pastor friend as the most remarkable thing about their experience in that church. And this is what my pastor friend said to me about that conversation, and I quote him. What struck me is that in all my years of doing pastoral ministry, I have never once encountered someone who boasted about an encounter where they sat, how proximate they were to someone who was unsheltered or unremarkable who showed up for a visit to the church. Many of us were raised with a very individualistic version of the Christian faith. Discipleship was presented as a me and Jesus kind of thing. Strong faith was reduced to quiet times with personal Bible study to deepen my knowledge, personal prayer to get my blessings, and Sunday worship to get my praise on, at least where I come from. Many of us were given a Christian upbringing that led us to believe that we could be good Christians all by ourselves. And those of us who were not raised in the church but started attending church later on in life, we, uh, many of us, uh, arrived at the same conclusion based upon the blending of the messaging of American culture with our newfound faith. But as he continues through his letter on true faith and wholeness, James is relentless in orienting God's people to the social dynamics of the Christian life. Which is to say that quiet times, personal Bible study, prayer and worship, all the practices and activities of the Christian life are intended to form us in love for social action. Whether that social action be shoveling snow for your elderly neighbors, advocacy in education or public health, showing hospitality to those in crisis, or creating art to delight and enlighten others. For James, in concert with the rest of Scripture, a socially disengaged faith is a defective faith. The Christian faith is public truth that is intended for public good. The Christian faith is public truth. It doesn't have to be hidden private. It's not my, I have my truth and you have your truth. The Christian faith is public truth 
that is intended for public good. James wants us to be hearers and doers of the word. And in our passage for today, James teaches us that if we would be doers of the word, then we must resist partiality and we must recover solidarity. Those are our two points for this morning. We must resist partiality and we must recover solidarity. So let's look at our first point. We must resist partiality. Now, in order to understand our passage for today, you have to be able to understand what is going on in chapter 1, verses 21 through 27. And if you haven't been with us, you can go back and listen to that sermon from last week. And what James does is he urges God's people to do God's word, and he uses the image of a mirror, arguing that we must look into the mirror of God's word so that we can see who we were meant to be as the image of God, recognize the disparity between who we are and what we were meant to be, and then by the power of the gospel, see that gap close between who we were meant to be as image bearers of God and who we actually are. And the first example that James offers as we look into the mirror of God's word is given to us in our passage for today. This is the first concrete example that James gives us of what it looks like to be a doer of the word, to be faithful, to be loyal, to be wise. James pastors us by giving concrete example of how the word is to be done. This is what he says in verses 1 through 4. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, after telling his people in chapter 1, verse 27, to keep themselves unstained by the world, the tendency to be partial toward the wealthy based on appearance becomes his prime example of what it looks like to be stained by the world. He's not talking about being out there and listening to secular music, right? That's not what he's talking about, being unstained by the world. Hey, be free. Listen to Bruno Mars. <laughs> listen to Anderson Pock, right? Like, you can listen. It's all God's, right? That's not what it means to be stained by the world. But partiality is exactly what it looks like to be stained by the world. This is what it looks like when worldly values creep into the community of God. And at a fundamental level, partiality is a failure or refusal to deal in the whole truth concerning our neighbors. It's a failure or refusal to deal in the whole truth concerning our neighbors. If you listen closely to the word partiality, you get a sense of why it's so destructive in community. Its Latin root suggests that only part of a whole is being considered 
appreciated, or properly weighed. Impartiality suggests that you see the whole picture of a person, their story, their personality, their gifts, their sufferings, their loves, their dreams, their concerns, and all of these data points are necessary if you are to see that person the way God sees them because God knows all that stuff about them. There is nothing about them that is disclosed to God. And he still declares their, their value that is unsearchable. Partiality is when you take one little sliver of that person's humanity, their appearance, and you make that the sum total of your judgments about them. To be impartial means that you look for the whole truth about that person regardless of their appearance and you treat them with fairness and dignity, fighting to get free from undue bias in your view of that person. To use a very common proverb in our culture, you can't judge a book by its cover. Yes, that's, that's, a, that's wisdom. James knows that we have a sinful tendency to lock in on the smallest and least significant part of a person's humanity, disregarding the rest of who they are. Now, in the context of our passage, partiality is when we assign positive value to the wealthy based upon their beautiful appearance, and we assign negative value to the poor and marginalized based upon their shabby appearance. When we operate in partiality, we see virtues in the wealthy that simply are not there. But we fail to see the virtues in the poor that actually are there. Or we fail to see the vices of the wealthy, but we presume vice in the poor and marginalized. They must be dangerous, criminal, lazy, irresponsible. You have no idea how they wound up where they are. You have no idea what tragedies have befallen them to put them in the place where they're at. But you presume. James tells us that partiality reveals a criminal anthropology. James says it makes us judges with evil thoughts. Thinking we can legitimately issue personal verdicts about other people's value. That is evil. Have you ever heard someone just flippantly say about you know, someone they're frustrated with, they're worthless. Evil. It's evil. And I don't care how you try to justify it. I don't care how bad of a screw-up they are. I don't care how different their politics are from yours. That is evil. The consistent testimony of Scripture is that God has already established the immense value of human beings, and you do not reserve the right to edit him. But the application of this teaching is not limited to what we call today class. It's not limited to class. Partiality was an axiom, a foundational principle in the social construction of the racial caste system. In the history of America and the colonial world, positive and negative value were assigned based upon your phenotype or your physical characteristics. And if you weren't white, you were animalized, demonized, or infantilized. 
say our brothers, Pastor Duke Kwan and Dr. Greg Thompson in their book, Reparations. I think they're dead on the money. Family, are you getting a sense of the dangers of partiality? Partiality is not a victimless crime where you just have a bad attitude about someone. It's evil. Remember the broader context of trials in the book of James, y'all. How there are all different kinds of trials that reveal what's in our hearts. And James is saying that every encounter with the wealthy and every encounter with the poor is a trial. It's a trial that is meant to reveal where your loyalties lie. Are your loyalties to God and the values that he has given? Or is your loyalty to the spirit of the age? It's a test. It's a trial. When the trials associated with wealth are not met with faith and loyalty to God, they lead to dehumanization of both the wealthy and the poor. You understand, right? The wealthy are dehumanized by instrumentation or instrumentalization, you could say. Which is a way of saying that people operating in partiality will try to use the wealthy for what they can extract from them. Or how the wealthy might benefit them. It's a selfish approach to the wealthy that, that if we can't get something from them, if they can't help us get a leg up in our journey, maybe they will soothe my sense of being insignificant and being close to them will make me feel like I'm important and valuable. But you notice what it does to the wealthy person. It instrumentalizes them. They become an instrument that you play for your own purposes. You're using them, and that is dehumanization. The poor are dehumanized by marginalization. Because we don't think they have anything to offer us, we push them to the side, we disregard them, we ignore them, we want nothing to do with them. Do you see, in both cases, centering ourselves leads to the dehumanization of our neighbors. Are you centering yourself in any way this morning? Just a question. Both scripture and world history prove that once people begin thinking of their neighbors as subhuman, they can legitimize doing any manner of evil to them. It doesn't take much. You could think of Pharaoh legitimizing his treatment of Israel. He felt threatened by them, and so he enslaved them. Right? You could think of what happened in the Holocaust. You could think of what happened in transatlantic chattel slavery. The, the lists go on and on and on. Rwandan genocide. It is cross-cultural in its evil reach, right? Partiality is. The challenge we face is that we can vehemently reject the idea of partiality and discrimination and yet passively accept discriminatory practices and structures as natural. Thinking that's just the way it is. It's just 
the way it is. Ain't nothing I can do about it. Say la vie. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I don't speak no French. I'll eat some French fries, but you see, this is a danger for us. The danger of partiality in congregations and the church is precisely that it can become so much a part of our thought and action, so common and natural and widespread and accepted that we no longer recognize it in our own lives and institutions. It becomes hidden, concealed. It becomes camouflaged. Now, kids, you don't have to be an adult to understand this. Kids out there, you don't have to be an adult to understand this. I want you to imagine something, kids. Kids, y'all with me? Y'all say amen? All right, kids, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that Pastor Russ bought a bunch of candy to give out to the children of Grace Mosaic. Yeah, yeah awesome, right? That's what I'm talking about. I knew I was going to get a praise in here on that. All right. My man's up in here giving his, his praise, right? Now, kids, imagine I bought all this candy, and I gathered you together. But when I gathered you together, I gave the kids who were dressed in nice clothes a bunch of candy, a lot of candy. But the kids who were dressed in shabby clothes, who were too poor to afford really nice clothes, I only gave them a little bit of candy. What would you say about that? That's not fair, right? That's not fair. If you have any question about whether children have a sense of justice, <laughs> sit down at a dinner table with a few kids and give one an extra potato from the others. Why do you got an extra potato? This ain't fair. Look, if I give one of the kids a piece of gum on the sneak and the other ones don't get it, They'll come in like, how long shall the rulers judge with no justice? They start that lament right now. We all have this inborn sense of justice and fairness at some level. Even kids can understand this. And here's the deal. I want you to know this, kids. God does not see you as more valuable because you have money or nice clothes. And your friends at school who may not have much money to get really nice clothes, God doesn't see them as less valuable because they don't have much money. God sees all of you as valuable and precious in his sight. And I want you to remember that in the way that you treat your friends in school and your friends in the neighborhood, all right? That sound good? I'm gonna tell you how to do it in just a little while, all right? And y'all bring them amens back for me too, okay? All right. And it must be said, y'all, that the poor are not immune to this partiality, which the context indicates. Remember, it is very likely that the communities to whom James was writing were largely made up of the poor. Listen, the rich need a different view of the poor and themselves. And the poor need a different view of the rich and themselves. 
The rich tend to think too highly of themselves and to expect deferential treatment on the grounds of their social status, while the poor tend to think too lowly of themselves and to expect poor treatment on the ground of their social status. It's a, it's a perennial challenge. James here is more concerned with, with speaking into the needs of the poor. He doesn't want them to think that they are off God's radar. And he also wants to put the wealthy on alert that they are not off God's radar. James is putting social status in its proper perspective as a stain of worldliness. Scottish theologian John Murray lights it up on the dangers of partiality when he says, and I quote, John Murray, professor of Westminster Seminary back in the golden days of the seminary I attended. This is what John Murray says. John Murray says this. I repeat for the recording, John Murray says this. The evils of capitalism are not to be spared. Perhaps few weaknesses have marred the integrity of the witness of the church more than the partiality shown the rich. The church has compromised with their vices because it has feared the loss of their money. Its voice has been silenced by the respect of persons and discipline sacrificed in deference to worldly prestige. James in his epistle does not spare this evil that has afflicted the church and disrupted the unity and communion of the saints. Respect of persons. It has warped the judgment of judges and equity could not enter. It has also invaded the sanctuary of God's house and the vices of the rich, high-mindedness, oppression, voluptuosity, worldliness, have enjoyed immunity from censure and the rich themselves a patronage of distinction, which has brought into the church itself the reproach of worldliness. John Murray. <laughs> Did you hear about that pastor in Washington, D.C.? He was growing against capitalism, right? <laughs> if you can't say it better, quote it, right? And we, we also need to be aware of the challenge and correcting our course, y'all. To treat the poor the way that James says we should and to avoid the partiality toward the wealthy that James says we should will often make the wealthy feel like they are being treated unfairly. But that is only because the wealthy are accustomed to a certain deference and accommodation. For example, if you are used to getting complimentary tickets to concerts through your contacts and connections, and then all of a sudden the venues change their policies and you have to actually pay for a ticket like everybody else, you might feel like you're being singled out or targeted, but you are not being treated unfairly. This is not an injustice to you to ask you to pay for your ticket just like everybody else, but it will feel like you are being singled out or targeted in an unfair way. However, the problem is not your treatment, but the fact that you're accustomed to receiving partial treatment and now you're having to wrestle with the difficulty of adjusting to being treated like everybody else and it stings your sinful pride and your false identity. But hear me when I say this, because I think most everybody in here 
qualifies as the wealthy, as James would put it. To channel Henry Nowen, wealthy people, you are not what you have. That is not your identity. That's not who you are. You are not what you have. You are not what you do. And you are not what other people say or think of you. None of this is who you really are. The best you, the most beautiful you, the most virtuous you is to be discovered when you abandon these dark lies and head toward the light, wisdom, and love of God. And that applies across all of these axes of partiality. There is a virtue a partiality where you are partial to those who you believe to be morally upright, outstanding people, and you are mean-spirited and condescending, and, and you do the culture war thing with those sinners out there. I know I'm talking to somebody in here. This is what Jesus got into battles all through the Gospels about because he hung out with the people who were scandalous because he did not show partiality. But those who were partial took issue with it. You got to be prepared. If you're going to live this life out, if you're going to walk it, those who are still stuck in partiality are going to resent you for it. And they're going to come for you on it. But remember, remember the message of James, what true faith looks like. It's resilient because that in itself is another trial. How will you treat those who persecute you? James then adds a powerful grounding for his teaching against partiality in verse 5. Take a look at it. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? <laughs> I think that Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard captured the thought of this verse well when he said, and I quote, There is at once something very humbling and yet infinitely elevating for the individual in the fact that God concerns himself just as much, absolutely just as much, with the least as with the greatest. I, I think that beautifully captures what James is trying to get across here when he says that God has chosen the poor. Now, some people will be like, that's liberation theology. I'm not concerned whether or not it's liberation theology. I'm concerned whether it's biblical. And it's clearly in the text. We are shown all through the story of Scripture that God chooses the poor. It's all through the story. It begins with God choosing Israel. Right? God chooses Israel. It continues to work through. Who are the people that get singled out throughout the story? People like Rahab, the vulnerable, those who are on the fringes. I mean, we could go on and on through the story of Scripture. And then when you get to the prophets, why are the prophets so upset? Why are they so mad? Because God's covenant people weren't living up to that picture of love for the vulnerable the marginalized, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner, the immigrant. Now, listen, I'm just saying, I know it's difficult to translate that into political policy. I understand that, that different political parties will try to roll out different 
policies around these things. But we're not talking about the policies right now. We're talking about the principle. The principle underneath it. And the Christian principle is that God chooses the poor. He sets his love on the poor. Throughout scripture, the Lord is portrayed as the guardian, comforter, and advocate of the poor. And how I long for Grace Mosaic to ever be known by our neighbors as a reflection of our God in dealing with the poor and marginalized. And to be clear, I am very, very proud of this community on this point. I think it's one of the most beautiful things about this community. Because I sat and I asked myself if the situation in James chapter 2, beginning at verse 2, unfolded here, if, if, if someone who were wealthy came in and someone who were poor came in, how would our people do? And I believe y'all would, would do really well. I believe y'all would love whoever walked through those doors because I've seen it. So I want you to take this teaching from James as an encouragement to continually persevere in this way of dealing with and seeing your neighbors. That's, that's what I long for. James, the, James has got a street name. You know, James's handle on the streets, on the streets, was James the Just. That's how he was known. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I hope one day I might live a life such that on my tombstone they might call me Russ the Just. <laughs> I aspire to live like that, sincerely. That's what I want my life to demonstrate about the character of God, among other things. But James the Just wants to strengthen your resolve to persevere in neighbor love. And if you recognize a disparity between who you're supposed to be and who you are, he's calling you to look to God for his wisdom so that you can be transformed in the way that you do the word. Christian philosopher and theologian Nicholas Wolterstorff said this, and I quote, Liturgical actions lose their authenticity when those who participate in the liturgy do not practice and struggle for justice. You know what that is? That's Isaiah 58. Go back and listen to our For the Life of the World series, okay? If you participate in the liturgy, but you don't struggle for justice, it undermines everything you're, you're proposing to be about. Trappist monk Thomas Merton said this, and I quote, Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. Snaps. That's that, that's that hot fire, right? That's hot fire. I'm going to say that again. Thomas Merton. Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. <laughs> you don't need to figure it out. You spend so much time trying to figure out, does this person deserve my help? Are they worth my time? Should I stop? He's like, Merton's like, you can lose all that. You can lose all the calculating, trying to figure out if this person is worthy of your help and love. You don't need to figure all that out. And this is beautifully and wondrously displayed in the gospel, isn't it? Because the good news of the gospel 
is that the Lord did not stop to inquire whether or not we were worthy. He didn't need to because he already knew that we were not worthy. But yet and still, he worked our rescue and he poured out his mercy and his grace upon us. He determined to do us good when we were determined to do and be bad. That's what kind of God he is. That's what kind of Savior he is. Our partiality deserves God's judgment. If you could see the ugliness of your heart toward your neighbors, you would agree that this is one of the most insidious evils that we commit. And yet, our text tells us in verse 13 that mercy triumphs over judgment, which leads us to our final point. We must recover Solidarity. Somebody say solidarity. Solidarity Solidarity is a historic teaching of the church that we're in urgent need of recovering today. Simply put, the Christian doctrine of solidarity teaches that we are our brother's and sister's keeper, regardless of national origin, racial or ethnic situations, socioeconomic status, and ideological differences. And ideological differences. We are our brothers and sisters keeper. At the core of solidarity is the pursuit of justice and peace. It is a deep and immovable commitment to the common good. Which is often in conflict with my own comforts, preferences, schedule, and budget. But true faith doesn't see my comforts, preferences, schedule, and budget as the (laughs) non-negotiable. True faith sees solidarity as the non-negotiable and everything else as flexible and changeable. We We talked about the whole feeling like you're a victim of the schedule that you yourself created, right? We talked about that last week. This is a a doctrine of the church historically that is worth prioritizing our lives around. Solidarity. The Christian doctrine of solidarity is grounded in love. To love someone is to desire that person's good and to take wise steps to help secure that good for them. That's just the basic of love. It's to to seek their good and to take whatever measures you can that are in your power to help secure that good for the beloved. There is a wonderful uh, example of solidarity. If you're like, I'm still not getting solidarity, I'm trying to, you know, I'm not sure. I came across this just this morning. There is a sculpture in Ireland in honor of the American Choctaw Indian tribe. And you might be like, to one. How in the world is, is there a, a sculpture in Ireland in honor of the American Choctaw Indian tribe? What in the world is the connection? Here's the connection. Back in the 19th century, when the potato famine hit Ireland, the American Choctaw nation sent financial gifts over to them just because they were people in in dire need. That's solidarity. That is solidarity. When you have every excuse to exempt yourself from doing the good, 
Solidarity says, nah, if I can do the good, if it's in my power to do good to that person or that group or my community, I'm going to do it. I must decrease so that he increases. Solidarity has that kind of spirit. This teaching is not just to be applied to individuals you meet, but to society as a whole. The roots of the contradiction between solidarity and its tragic denial lies in a faulty notion of freedom which exalts the isolated individual in an absolute way over neighbor. That's, that's that American, I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free, right? Like, that, like we boast in our freedom. Can't nobody tell me what to do. It's a free country. I'm in America, right? But we constantly import a meaning to freedom that the Bible does not give. This is not a Christian definition of freedom, that you are free to do whatever you want at the expense of others. And that, my friends, is not actually freedom. It's a different kind of bondage. We need to be free, friends. God wants you to be free, really free. So how do we recover solidarity? I'm closing. How do we recover solidarity? Go back to verse 1. Look at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, if you live by partiality, it not only shows a current rejection of Jesus, but it gives you a picture of how you would have treated Jesus had you been present and alive when he walked the earth. A lot of people like to think, oh, if I had come into jail, how did them fools just mistreat Jesus and, and neglect him and disregard him and battle him? You know, <laughs> how you treat the poor now is how you would have treated Jesus because when he came, he was poor. The script tells us that he did not have a place to lay his head. He wasn't a homeowner. He was vulnerable. And yet... There is a beautiful gospel irony that James is deploying here. By calling Jesus Christ the Lord of glory, James is presenting the powerful reminder of the impartiality of Jesus and his willingness to live in solidarity with us. This is James the just way of saying, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you who are poor could become rich. This is James' James' way of saying what Paul said in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Of God the Father. This is the subtle way that through this irony of naming Jesus as the Lord of glory, he is challenging those who are found guilty of partiality to return to Jesus 
in their treatment of their neighbors. He abased himself to identify with the despised and the oppressed, which was us. And he did it first for our redemption, and now we must do the same for his glory and for the redemption of our neighbors. So what do you walk away with from this text? Three things I want you to do. Look within, look around, and look up. Look within, look around, and look up. Look within first. Inner work is needed here. Remember the mirror. Go to the mirror of God's word to see where you are as it relates to partiality. Are you more drawn to people who you think you can help or to people that you think can help you? Who are the models of faith that you look to and point to? If and when we have an elder who is poor, will you receive them and submit to their leadership? Because I fully intend on getting there by God's grace. Remember, James is just echoing Jesus. This is what Jesus said. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Only the forgiving may expect forgiveness. And in this text, only the merciful should expect mercy. That's a hard thing to hear, but it's even in the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Have you thought about that? <laughs> that's that's um, sobering. Yeah? Mm. All right, two. Look around. Henry Nouwen said that, quote, the minister, and you are ministers, is called to recognize the suffering of their time in their own heart and make that recognition the starting point of their service. His service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. He says that your ministry to your place and your people will not be perceived as the real deal unless it comes from a heart that's wounded by the sufferings of your neighbors. That you must, one of the reasons why we do lament all the time around here is because lament, we need the training wheels so that our hearts are prepared to really grieve the things that are grievous and to not numb out to them or put our head in the sand. Where is the suffering in this neighborhood? In our neighborhoods, where is the suffering? Look around. What are the subtle signals or behavior patterns that become visible welcome signs to some people and visible keep out signs to others? We always need to be asking this question as a cross-cultural community. You, ne you never arrive. You have to continually seek the Lord Live in communion with him. Walk in faith and repentance, confession, humility. These things are critical to this life. In our city, who gets the best schools and parks and stores? Why is that? Why are there food deserts in our city? 
Why is that? And what are we going to do about it? What's within our power to do for the good of our neighbors? Three, look up. And this is just to say, seek God's wisdom in negotiating this thing. Remember, James, God loves to give wisdom to those who come and ask from a place of loyalty to him. Right? Ask. Look up. Look for wisdom from God. The, the world may outstrategize us. The world may outspend us. And the world might outmarket us. But we must never allow the world to outlove us. We should be welcoming whoever comes into our church and whoever comes into our lives as if Jesus Christ himself walked through those doors. Because according to Matthew 25, it is indeed him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.